Um, it's my pleasure to be with you all. I'm, I'm very excited to get to share with you some of the things I've been studying these past few weeks as we look at Exodus chapter 12. Please open your Bibles, if you have them, um, to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. And as was mentioned, we are continuing our summer series on Christ in the Old Testament, where we're trying to understand how it is the case that everything in the law and the prophets and the Psalms relates to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As was read last week from Luke 24, verse 46 and 47. And if we fully appreciate the significance of this teaching from Christ, if you go to the next slide, you'll see the verse which says that all of the scriptures refer to Christ. And as we look in the Old Testament, we find that it's not just the explicitly prophetic texts that refer to Christ, but it's the very shape of the story, the very history of Israel recounts God's dealings with his people. And their story is also our story. So we have to follow the method of interpretation that's laid out not only by Jesus, but as he spoke through Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul explains the story of Israel to the Gentiles at the church of Corinth by saying that they passed through the sea and those that passed through are our fathers and they partook of the same spiritual food and drink, the same spiritual drink that we now receive, and that is Jesus Christ. So in other words, when Paul thinks of how to motivate the Gentile Christians to live a life of holiness, he does so by reminding them of how their own story in experiencing Christ is embodied by their spiritual fathers who were freed from captivity and nourished in the wilderness by the same Christ who feeds them spiritually now. And this is why Jude, the brother of Jesus, can look back on the event of the Exodus, and he can say that it was Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. It's all because the history of Israel recounted in the Old Testament is shaped by the revelation of who Christ is, and therefore who God is as well, that we can have this way of reading the Old Testament. So with this in mind, we turn to Exodus 12 to find the story of the Exodus and the Passover, and we expect to find Christ revealed there, as well as the character of God. And in fact, that's a central theme throughout the book of Exodus. It's the revelation of God's name, his covenantal name. In chapter 3 at the burning bush, he says that, I am who I am. This is the name Yahweh, and it reflects his faithful and unchanging character. So as we go through this passage this morning, I want you to ask yourself, why should I read the book of Exodus? Why should I reflect on this particular chapter? Why do I need to hear the story of Israel? And I ask you to consider what unique way is God revealing himself and his unchanging character in this passage? In our sin, humanity is like the arrogant Pharaoh who claims in chapter 5, verse 12, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and so I will not let Israel go. And we often think, like Pharaoh, that we will not be judged. Our willful ignorance results in hardened hearts of disobedience, which the righteous king of the universe rightly judges. And he does so in this book, through bringing plagues on Egypt. The express purpose of the plagues is given clearly 
It says, it's so that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh. And by them also, Israel is assured that God has not forsaken them in their slavery. Rather, through the Exodus, God is bringing about a new birth as they go through the waters of the Red Sea. For his people, so they, he's bringing about a new birth for his people so that their original calling to wholeheartedly worship God can be realized. And we find this as the stated purpose of the Exodus as well. It says that it is done, and God says, let my people go so that they may serve me. Other translations have, so that they may worship me. Exodus isn't about a vengeful God seeking revenge or a narcissistic God seeking attention. It's a picture of how God's character of faithfulness, goodness, and power is revealed in his deliverance of Israel so they may worship him through sacrifice. So in light of this, we approach Exodus 12, which recounts the Passover and the way out of Egypt for Israel. And I want this central message to be on your mind as I develop it in the following points. And it is this. Yahweh reveals his character through the Exodus as it witnesses to Jesus Christ as the one who delivers us from slavery to sin through his sacrifice so that we can worship him in freedom with sacrifices of praise. So let's consider how the character of Yahweh is revealed in Exodus 12 in these three ways. And as I said, please have your Bible open. It's a long chapter, and I'll be going to different parts of it throughout. So first we find in Exodus 12 that Yahweh is the God who protects. He's the God who protects. Exodus 12 begins at the climax of a larger section which recounts the ten plagues of judgment that were brought on the Egyptians for enslaving the Israelites. And it's helpful to know when reading this story that in the ancient Egyptian religion, the Pharaoh had set himself up as a counterfeit God to be worshiped as the source of provision and life for the nation. Pharaoh was the physical manifestation of Ra, the sun god, and his son would be the next embodiment of this deity in this idolatrous dynasty which secured power through oppressing the people of God. And therefore, he reveals his status as a seed of the serpent, which was revealed to, um, in the prophecy in Genesis 3 long ago. The Egyptians did not only make worship of Ra through Pharaoh, however. They were polytheistic, much like our culture today. Except for them, they exalted a variety of natural phenomenon as the channel through which the various deities were providing for them. So whether it was the light of the sun or the water of the Nile, the cattle in the field, each represented the provision of their idolatrous gods. And when Yahweh brought judgment on Egypt through the plagues, which turned the water of the Nile to blood, brought darkness on the land, it was painfully clear in its demonstration, not only that Yahweh is real and able to affect change in the world, but also that the empty worship of false gods is incapable of providing for the Egyptians. When chapter 11 recounts the coming final plague, which was the death of all the firstborn, even including the cattle, we must not forget the beginning of Exodus, which featured Pharaoh's own attempted murder of all the Israelite firstborn sons. Yahweh protected his people at that time through the midwives. And so too here, he is establishing protection for his soon to be delivered people 
by crippling the Egyptian nation for years to come. Through bringing the death of all the firstborn, Yahweh was breaking not only the line of dynastic succession through which the gods of Egypt were recognized in the offspring of Pharaoh, but he was also clearly expressing his protection of Israel, who he calls his firstborn son in chapter 4. So when we come to Exodus 12 itself, we find in verse 12, it plainly states, the judgment that Yahweh is bringing is not only on the man and beasts, but also on the gods of Egypt, which reveals their inability to protect the Egyptians. And this is both just and it's evangelistic, as it's only with the clear message of God's rejection of idolatry that the message of his true love can bring transformation. Consider also the reality that the judgment of death due to idolatry was not to befall only the Egyptians, but the Israelites as well. Why was this the case? Think back on the other plagues. Israel was protected throughout the other plagues. So why in this plague would judgment befall them as well? Well, for those that know the writings of Paul, the answer is clear. There is none that are righteous before God. In fact, later on in Joshua chapter 24, we find out that the Israelites worshipped these false Egyptian gods while they were in slavery in Egypt. So it's clear that they deserved judgment as well. And yet God protects his people, not merely by defeating their enemy, but by providing a way for restored relationship with him through what is commonly called the Passover meal. And so I want you to take care to note this word with me for a moment. Here, it's necessary to consider what kind of connotation that this word could communicate. If we don't think carefully, the impression can arise that Yahweh is solely an agent of destruction, which um, merely turns aside when he sees the blood that is shed. And for many, when we read the Old Testament and find the constant refrain of God seeking sacrifice and blood, we can form a picture of God's character that depicts him as on a rampage of judgment with nothing but the hope that by some means he could be avoided. And this is not the picture that is provided in Exodus 12. There are two Hebrew words throughout the chapter which must be carefully distinguished. One is abar, and you can see it in the verse on the screen. It's often translated as pass through. But the other is pasach, and it's frequently translated as Passover. And it's important that we don't think of this Passover in the sense of passing by, as if the goal of the blood of the lamb is some magical device by which we can avoid the presence of God. While it's true and it's undeniable that it is the Lord who is bringing judgment via the destroyer, it is equally true that when the Lord Pasach He's acting as a guard and a protector. In fact, protect is the way Pesach is translated in other verses, such as Isaiah 31, verse 5, which I have on the screen. It says, like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. So in this way, it's helpful to think of Pesach not as Passover in the sense of God passing by, but in the sense of hovering over or covering over. This imagery of a bird hovering over in protection is associated with the Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament. 
as it's the Spirit of God which hovers over the waters at creation. And it's the Spirit which hovers over Israel to lead and protect them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night in the next two chapters. It's the Holy Spirit in the manifestation of a cloud of glory which fills the house of God when the temple is dedicated. And so too, when divine judgment comes to the Israelites, it's because of the blood of the Lamb that the Spirit of Yahweh can be said to Pesach. And it's specifically the door. So it guards, it protects, it doesn't allow the destroyer to enter. My dear brothers and sisters at Westlake, please don't miss this beautiful picture of Trinitarian love that's displayed. It's because Yahweh has appointed that the blood of the lamb be offered, that the spirit can be said to cover over the house and protect the Israelites from the destructive effects of sin. And so too, when we read our New Testaments carefully, we know that as it says in 1 Corinthians, Christ is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. And because he was sent by the Father, it is through his blood that we can have confidence that the same spirit which descended on Christ as a dove also abides with us forever as our comforter and helper, as it says in John 14. Yes, we should fear the Lord and never forget he is righteous to judge our sins. The text is clear in this regard. And yet we must also Never forget, the very same God who sends judgment has appointed a way to be protected from the destructive consequences of our rebellion. And there may be some of you here this morning with a conscience that can only see God as a judge. And you may be prone to question whether you could ever be loved by a perfect God who knows every intimate detail about your life, including the mistakes. My message of hope for you this morning is that for those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb, they're also covered by the Spirit, which defends against the lie that anything can stand against the blood of Christ. As Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, then who can be against us? So we've seen God's character is revealed as a protector. Now let's consider how the text shows that Yahweh is a provider. My second point, God provides. You'll recall last week, we saw the first explicit instance of God providing a lamb as a sacrifice in the story of Abraham, being asked to sacrifice his firstborn son in Genesis 22. In Exodus 12, we find the principle of substitution is continued as God makes clear not only that a substitute will be provided, but he explains exactly how it is to be prepared. Now, considering we already know that the lamb is meant to depict Christ, the parallels can be seen rather plainly. First, we learn the lamb is to be without blemish. And it's not without blemish because if it was spotted or if it was limping, then it would taste any worse. That's not the point of the meal. Rather, it's to point to Christ who was perfectly without sin. It says this in 1 Peter 1. Next, we find the lamb was to be a year old when it died, which is a short time after it's physically fully matured. I think lambs reach full maturity around six months, so this isn't long after that. And so, too, we know that Christ died not as a young child or as a very old man, but around 33 years of age. What about verse 46, which stresses that the bones of the lamb were not to be broken? 
Well, the New Testament helps us here again, as John makes clear in his gospel that Jesus's bones were not broken so that this very scripture might be fulfilled. And yet, just as the unblemished lamb symbolizes the spiritual sinlessness of Christ, so too we can say even more than merely that Christ's physical bones were not broken. In his death, the divine person, who is both God and man, never ceased to maintain the union of his two natures. He is forever God and man, unbroken. What about the manner in which the lamb was to be eaten? In verse 12, it says that the belt was to be fastened, sandals on, staff in hand, eat in haste. Now, I've been known by my friends to carry my backpack around, perhaps more than is needed, because I never want to be caught off guard on public transportation without a variety of books to read. And that said, even I don't walk around the house let alone eat dinner with my shoes on and jacket buttoned up and backpack strapped. It's certainly not the most comfortable way of enjoying a meal. But that's not the point of the meal as well. It's not about comfort. This meal was about an embodied performance, which recalls the way that God provided deliverance from bondage. When the Israelites partook of the meal, they were to enact this always ready mindset of eagerly anticipating their departure by being thoroughly prepared. And so too, the writer of Hebrews urges us to lay aside every hindrance, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. If you'll spare me one more illustration, uh, I would never seek to play my favorite game of ultimate Frisbee, which requires a great deal of running with my backpack on, full of books weighing me down. It gives me chills just to think about it. Yet how many of us are seeking to walk the Christian life knowing that there is some unconfessed sin that we haven't really sought to remove and we merely pretend it won't affect our overall outcome in the race? This is why the text is equally clear in the following feast, immediately after Passover, that leaven was to be removed from the entire house, it says in verse 15. Now, leaven does not always symbolize sin in Scripture. In fact, in one of Jesus' parables, the kingdom of God is compared to leaven. But the reason why it frequently does compare to sin is because it captures how something small and insignificant, seemingly, can gradually grow and spread. The response to leaven, to throw it out of the house entirely, is so that it doesn't find its way into other items, even accidentally, and so too, I ask you, when you notice the presence of some idol in your heart that you're still holding on to, especially when it's indulging in something that is seemingly harmless because it's private, and we try and justify by thinking, oh, it doesn't affect or hurt anyone else, the response has to be fierce and to the root. Throw it out entirely. Lay every hindrance aside so you can run the race. Yet this text not only depicts God's provision through the festival meals of Passover and unleavened bread, we can consider also how God provided the very material means for the sustenance of Israel, as well as how they would worship during their time in the wilderness. Consider in verse 36, it describes the plundering of the Egyptians. After centuries of imprisonment and slavery, God had so changed the hearts of the Egyptians that they willingly gave money 
supplies, clothing, even jewelry for their journey out of captivity. Think of the incredible and sudden reversal being shown here from slavery to prosperity and at the hands of your very persecutors. Though, like Abraham, Israel was going into the wilderness to be tested to see if they would truly worship God, we must never doubt that God is able and willing to provide the means that are necessary to worship him. And so finally, we see the character of God, not just as he protects and as he provides, but in his promises, the God who promises This chapter opens with the significant command that the Feast of Passover was to mark the beginning of the new year for Israel. As the Exodus Passover was to mark, I'm sorry, the Exodus was to mark the defining revelation of God's character, and it's referred to as such throughout the Old Testament. So too, the Exodus is the defining mark of the covenant people of God. So it makes sense that this festival would stand as an annual type of a birthday, marking the Jewish new year. Unlike in other ancient societies, where their new year was grounded in the nature's renewal or in some mythology like the birth of a new god, for Israel it was the historical reality of a people being liberated from oppression. And so every year, the feast was to be shared as a day of remembrance. And when thought of in the context of a national holiday, this initially foreign-sounding text, which can be very ritualistic, it can be thought of as more familiar if we put it in the context of a holiday. For example, one of my favorite holidays, national holidays, is Thanksgiving, where families all across America gather around a table full of food and express their gratitude that they're not British. (laughs) And as with any holiday, and especially in my family's household, there's a careful and detailed list of preparations for the day which consists of extensive cooking and a detailed, um, I'm sorry, extensive cleaning and cooking according to recipe to prepare for our guests. So in this context, it would really not be a stretch to say that we have a ritual, both in our preparation and our celebration of the meal. And this ritual is not a laborious burden that dampens the authenticity of our experience. Rather, the annual repetition hastens the heart to recall all the shared experiences and meaning from years past. And so too, the Israelites were called to regularly commemorate the Passover so that they would never forget God's faithfulness to his promise. And here, as Christians in the new covenant, how can we not think of Christ's promise that the cup of the Lord's Supper represents his blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. How could we fail to see the beauty in carefully preparing our hearts for this meal in which Christ promises to be with us as we spiritually feed on his flesh and blood? Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. We spiritually eat and drink the same reality that was offered to the Israelites, that is Christ himself. So when we take communion, let us remember this and be fed by the promise of God. Let us also not forget this responsibility to annually remember the Passover was meant to be a means of instruction for parents towards their children. God's promise throughout the Old Testament is communicated through families, and the Israelite parents were to instruct their children plainly 
why they were doing what they were doing and the manner in which they did so. It says this in verse 26 and 27. And the point of this, I urge you to consider carefully today, is this. Parents, the instruction of children starts in the home. Don't let the availability of professional education deceive you in thinking that your responsibility to raise your child in the way of the Lord is in any way lessened. The Old Testament is a constant picture of God working through families to bring about his promises. And from the time of Adam, the communication of God's promises is to be passed down from parent to child. As the Israelite parents must instruct their children about the Passover, so too you must instruct your children about Christ, who is the true Passover lamb. Like the Israelites, tell your children how God saved you from your bondage to sin. Tell them the law of God. Tell them the promises of God. As it says in Ephesians chapter 6, fathers must bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. See Sunday school as a supplement, but never as a replacement for an instruction in the way of the Lord that is firmly rooted in the home and the family. Finally, and briefly, there's another way that God's promise is clearly seen in Exodus 12, and that's in this language in 37 and 38 of a mixed multitude. Both the size and the constituents of those in the Exodus witness to the profound faithfulness of God to his promises. Remember, just last week we saw in Genesis 22, where God told Abraham that through your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And the very fact that it was an ethnically mixed group, which was not strictly Israelites, that came out of Egypt in the Exodus, means God is already working through the Israelite people to bring about a new world. And in verse 43, if you look there, it says that no foreigner shall eat of the Passover lamb. And we could be surprised by this. No foreigner, what could that mean? It's not referring to an ethnic discrimination. It's a religious discrimination. Any foreigner that was part of the people of Israel could be brought in and join the, com the covenant community, but they had to follow the laws. They had to follow what Yahweh had provided. And so we see Israel as being a witness and a blessing to the nations. And not to mention the fullness of this, of course, is brought about through Christ, who is the true Israel, the true son of God, and he brings salvation to the world. Finally, we saw the remarkable large size of Israel. And even if the numbers are to be intended as some sort of rhetorical exaggeration, because they're incredibly large, 600,000 men alone, not including women and children, would be two to three million. It's, a, it's an astronomical size. And yet this attests to God's faithfulness to multiply the people of Israel, even in their oppression in fulfillment of what he said to Abraham, which was that he would make his descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. Now, yes, it took over 400 years for these promises to be fulfilled. And it would take many more centuries for them to find their ultimate fulfillment. But the story of the Exodus leaves the reader confident that with patience, God will bring his people out of exile. That's what Exodus is coming out of exile. And the gospel message that we cling to dearly and must remind ourselves of every day is that God came to mankind and was born under the curse of exile. 
so that he could bring an exodus of his people out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. This story of God's deliverance through sacrifice and exodus is consistent from the Old Testament to the New Testament for those who have the spiritual eyes to see it. Even Moses and Elijah knew this. And when they were appearing next to Jesus on the mountain, when he was transfigured and his glory was displayed, it says they spoke with him of his exodus or his departure. In Jesus, both prefigured in the book of Exodus and shown throughout the Gospels, we find the perfect picture of the character of God who protects the weak, provides for the helpless, and is faithful to his promises. So may our hearts be filled with gratitude and wonder at our awesome God to the point that they can only join with the angels and sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for us.